I was trying to save the world. I was trying to, you know, make all this money, do all this stuff to go out and proselytize and tell everybody how they needed to behave. I've really come to terms with how important it is that I take personal responsibility for myself and I take ownership of how I am and how I show up. I've let go of the ego part of me that thinks I know the way the world should be and surrendered to the, the playfulness and the joy of just being a part of this existence. We're alive. That's, how can you not be optimistic? We're here. It's incredible. The Rich Roll Podcast. Here's a question for you. What happens when all your fantasies come true? When you come to discover that you're being massively rewarded for living a life of just extraordinary overindulgence? Well, if you're lucky, you awake one day to realize that life, your life, a life so many aspire to, a life of sex, drugs, rock and roll, wealth and fame, a life you're absolutely convinced would make you happy, instead leaves you empty. But also motivated to evolve, to embark on a sort of Viktor Frankl-esque search for meaning that ultimately leads to a spiritual awakening and a path towards purpose, greater self-actualization and ultimately service. This is a story and archetype that has recurred on this show in many forms, but today's version of that story comes in the shape of Adrian Grenier. You know Adrian as an actor, he's appeared in many films and television projects, but of course is most well known for his portrayal of Vinnie Chase in the HBO hit show Entourage, which was this dizzying and meta experience for Adrian that in so many interesting ways came to parallel his own personal life. But Adrian has grown up, he's evolved past this archetype of adolescent id, trading Hollywood for a ranch outside Austin, Texas, maturing into a regenerative farmer, an environmentalist, he's the founder of the Lonely Whale Foundation and impact investor as co-founder and chief experience officer of Do Contra Ventures. A heart-centered community builder who cares deeply about our symbiosis with self, with each other and the natural habitat we share. Today, Adrian shares his story and it's a good one. Couple more things to mention before we excavate his soul. But first, a few words from the sponsors that make this show possible. Hey everybody, like me, Inside Tracker wants to help you start the new year right. So they're thrilled to help support the Living Proof Challenge, the no cost science based habit building program designed by my well being wizard brother, Simon Hill, to specifically up level the most important biomarkers that drive health span, that drive disease prevention, physical fitness, and mental well being, courtesy of a doable, evidence based 12 week program elaborated upon in length in my conversation with Simon that dropped January 1. That's RRP 804. If you listen to that episode, then you know the program entails comprehensive blood testing at both the commencement and conclusion of the challenge. And nobody handles blood testing better 
an inside tracker who are graciously encouraging everyone to join the no cost challenge by offering a 25% off discount on inside tracker tests. To unlock the discount and learn more about this challenge, visit theproof.com slash living proof. We're brought to you today by Birch. If you're serious about optimizing your sleep, listen up. I've spent countless hours researching and testing various methods to improve my nightly shut-eye, and I can confidently say that it all starts with a good foundation. And if your bed is old, if it's uncomfortable, lumpy, then your sleep inevitably is going to be impacted. So it's important to invest in a quality mattress, one that's insanely comfortable, that's organic, sustainably made, and that, my friends, is a birch mattress. Fairtrade and Rainforest Alliance certified with the finest quality organic natural materials like organic Fairtrade cotton. Birch mattresses are made with none of the toxic chemicals and off-gassing produced by most major brands. Kind of important not to be breathing that for a third of your life, I'd say. Plus, it's super luxurious. I've been sleeping on Birch for about five years, and I'd say it's the perfect ratio of soft to supportive and the craftsmanship is just next level. I've got one in every room of my house. I love it. Pretty sure you will too. And right now, Birch is giving 20% off all mattresses and two free EcoRest pillows at birchliving.com slash richroll. That's 20% off and two free EcoRest pillows. Sleep better with Birch. Okay, Adrian Grenier. So this is a conversation about growing up. It's about the hidden ugly truths that lay beneath the modern American dream. It's about the work required and the beauty to behold in wrestling with the soul and endeavoring to connect with and express that which is more fundamental and meaningful. And it's about finding ways to share what you discover in service to a better world. This one is soulful. I hope it resonates. So, Let's do the thing. This is me and Adrian Grenier. Well, first of all, happy birthday, man. Thank you. Yeah, I appreciate you inviting me to your birthday party last night. I'm sorry I couldn't yeah. make it. I didn't get the email until too late, but. Who, who emails birthday invitations? I don't you gotta, know. I, I, we should have texted you. It's, it's cool, man. It's you. cool, man. But. Uh, uh, happy birthday. Thank you. How old are you now? 44? 45. 45. 45, yeah. You're a man. <laughs> yes, you're, officially. You're in your middle age, officially. Yeah. How does it feel? Good. I, I just grew up fast enough to squeeze in manhood, you know, within right. the 45 years. <laughs> had I had I waited another year, I probably would have never grown up. Yeah. Well, I feel <laughs> like you've been on this crash course. You've compressed a lot into the last couple of years. Yeah. Yeah. which is what we're gonna get into. Yeah. What's funny, um, well, thank you for making time to do this today. It's super nice to finally meet you. And what's funny about the fact that we're sitting here today is that we were first introduced, we talked about this on the phone the other day. I don't know if you recall, but we were first introduced by Mishka Shubali back in December of 2015. And we okay. had some back and yeah. forth mm-hmm. on email. Yeah, remember. And that didn't seem to go anywhere. And then like, I feel like every year and a half or so, you'd resurface and we'd try to figure out how to sit together. And then we just couldn't sync it up. Mm. 
So you are officially the longest gestating <laughs> podcast guest in the in the history. This has taken six six years uh-huh. to make happen, uh-huh. um, but I've learned to not force these things. Like they're 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 meant to happen when they're meant to happen. Yeah, and I feel like had you had we done this in 2016, it would be very different and far yeah, less I don't think meaningful. I had anything interesting to say back then. <laughs> you know, yeah. maybe a few things, <laughs> but I feel like now you're in a position to talk about a lot of important, meaningful things. Yeah, I, well, you know, so back, in, back then I had a lot more people between mm-hmm. me and, you know. Yeah, I gathered, guys like I you. gathered as much. There were um, a lot of gatekeepers. A lot of gatekeepers. So a lot of the stuff didn't even get to me and, and you know, um, and I willfully, remained ignorant Mm because, you know, I didn't want to have to work too much, you know? (laughs) It's like, if I didn't, if my my people didn't call me and tell me I had to do something all the better because I could go to brunch. Sure. Um, And and then I went through a period where I just shed everything and and was doing nothing because I was basically in isolation. And now I'm sort of finding a nice balance where I have some people that I work with, but I do most of the things myself. So I have actually some, you know, I, I know what's happening in my life. Mm-hmm. I, I, I manage my own schedule. And so, you know, we actually, I think sort of mostly schedule this. Yeah, it was know, just us. In person. Yeah, yeah, it was just us. But I feel like when you're in that position and you're on a television show, I mean, on some level you need those people. The, the incoming has to be just completely dizzying. So there's no way that you'd be able to manage it on your own. Oh yeah, you become a big machine. Yeah. You know, you, if, if you're successful, you know, you become a, a lot of moving parts and you become like sort of the, you know, the Millennium Falcon or something. Right. <laughs> but now you're living on a farm outside yeah. Austin. Yeah. Is it in Bastrop? It, yeah, outside of yeah. Austin. Yeah, 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 yeah. So you're like Ryan Holiday's neighbor now. I am. Yeah, I was yeah. texting with him yesterday. In fact, are you? Yeah. Really? So are you, that's that's hilarious. Yeah. That's so interesting. How has the how does it feel? Like there's this this sense that there's this great migration to Austin right now. Is that do you feel that? Is that real or is that just like a handful of influencers move there? So it feels like more people than it actually is. No, the inundation is real. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's palpable, you feel it for sure. And already before the pandemic, there was an inordinate amount of people moving there every day. Uh-huh. And then the pandemic hit and then a lot of people and then all the like influencers right. and all the people you recognize. Right, and then I'm sure like a second wave of people that wanna be around those people. Yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> right. And I, you know, honestly, I'm, I'm concerned. I'm mm-hmm. concerned because, you know, Austin's slogan is keep Austin weird. But there are a lot of people that just aren't that weird. Mm-hmm. They're just, you know, kind of you know, kind of typical, you know, and and they're coming in and they're they're, they're not passing through that rite of passage to keep Austin weird, meaning like you know, being a part of like that that culture which is 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 unique to Austin. Yeah, but not too many of those people are gonna be buying ranches or farms and growing their own food unless they do fit that bill. Yeah, well, the, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're in Austin. I, I skipped town almost. Right. You know, yeah, you're not even in outside the mix of that anyway. Exactly. Well, I'm really interested in this arc that you've been on, which kind of parallels this 
Victor Frankl, Man's Search for Meaning kind of hero's journey. Uh, I think it's fascinating. It's a recurring theme on this show, mm-hmm. um, but it's really my favorite kind of landscape to mine, this exploration of, of how you go from achieving your wildest fantasies as a young person mm-hmm. and living this overindulgent lifestyle only to wake up one day and discover it ain't all that. Yeah. <laughs> so why don't we go back to the genesis of that? Okay. Um, <laughs> I rewatched Teenage Paparazzo the other day uh-huh. and I also watched, I had never seen the documentary that you made about um, reconnecting with your dad, mm-hmm. A Shot in the Dark. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I found it super interesting. I mean, I think Teenage Paparazzo feels almost quaint compared to what's going on right now. Everybody with their flip phones mm-hmm. and although Facebook existed, you know, social media wasn't what it, what it is yeah. today. Mm-hmm. And so, it was sort of cute compared to what it must be like now. Yeah. Had you be, been living kind of the life that you were living in this particular moment? It was, to, it was totally simpler times. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> yeah. It was like celebrities were celebrities and they were chased by the paparazzi and the paparazzi were just trying to make a buck and they were tabloids and, you know, they it, now it's just far, far more complex. Right. And, yeah. Um, the the teenage paparazzo movie for people who haven't seen it you 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 connect with this young kid who's uh, you know out there shooting pictures of celebrities he's like thirteen or something yeah. like that um, and he goes on his own kind of exploration of fame as his notoriety increases you know in, in no small part because of your interest in him. Mm-hmm. Um, he's got to be like twenty five now though, right? Have you stayed mm-hmm. in touch with him? Yeah, um, I, the last time I ran into him was at some. LA party, but I, I, no, we don't talk much. No, mm-hmm. is, he, is he still doing that? I, I think he's transitioned into more photography. I mean, he's, he's a talented kid, mm-hmm. so he's, I, I mean, I don't know exactly to be honest, but um, I've seen his Instagram and a lot of photographs and right. um, pretty pictures. Interesting. In the documentary about your dad, you get a glimpse of you know what your mom is like, the era in which she grew up, the circumstances under which you were born. And looking at your life now, it feels like you've become your mom's son. Like she's this hippie, you know, into all this spiritual mystical stuff, which is kind of much more in your wheelhouse now. Well, you know, I finally stopped rebelling <laughs> and, you know, decided to just embrace my, my nature. Yeah, I suppose, uh, instead of rebelling against my mom and trying to be, you know, not, not don't tell me what to do or who to be, I'll, you know, decide myself. Mm-hmm. And I realized there's a lot of wisdom in what she was sharing with me and what she was offering. Uh, once I decided to just stop being a rebel without a cause. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, ultimately um, I owe so much to my mother and so much gratitude and appreciation for the way she shaped my thinking and my heart, mostly my, my heart, my spirit. I'm, I'm, so grateful to have grown up in a home that was as loving and as supportive as as I did. You know, even though I was a single yeah. mom and she was working really hard and often absent in many ways because she was, you know, in the grind. Not to say she was an absent mom. She just was working so hard. I didn't get a lot of her attention. Yeah, no, she was busting her ass busting for you. Her ass. I mean, exactly. You exactly. know, you get that in the movie. Like this woman is incredible, yeah. and the responsibility that she, you know, decided to shoulder for herself to create this life for you. Yeah, um, mm-hmm. uprooting you from New Mexico and 
moving to New York City yeah. and just being on the hustle to you know, provide for you. Yeah, and and also now as an adult, finally, you know, I'm able to recognize that my mom was operating within a, a larger culture that, that where in which men were mostly absent. Mm-hmm. Uh, males were around, but mm-hmm. like men, who, like divine masculine men, embodied men who were showing up and providing that support system and uh, playing a, a, a positive role in the family, this, it didn't exist. Right. It didn't exist for her, it didn't exist for her mother. So, and, and I think in the movie, she says, you know, she had a you know, sort of a displaced sense of the role of a man. Mm-hmm. And so that pattern carried out in her while raising me where she didn't really have any men to support her. So she took on that, that male uh, role Right. for me. And that's actually been quite an inspiration for me today now is how can I now be the kind of man that would show up for my mother, for me as a kid. And of course now for my partner and my future children. Yeah. And having to learn that without having a strong male figure in the household when you grew up. I mean, she says in the movie, that after you reconnect with your dad and you have a few simple moments with him that you have actually received more love than she received from her dad, even though her dad was in the house because he was so emotionally unavailable. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and trying to, you know, part of that movie, although, you know, on the surface, it's kind of like this road trip to, to meet your dad, beneath the surface, it's really this, exploration on your part to try to understand what fatherhood is. And this all takes place like a couple of years before Entourage even happens, Mm -hmm. right? So Mm -hmm. you're grappling with this idea of what it means to be a man when you Mm -hmm. grew up without that presence in your Mm -hmm. life. So it's not like a new, this idea of of what does it mean to, you know, stand tall and be, you know, an emblematic, responsible, loving, compassionate provider these are subjects that you've been thinking about for a long time. They've occupied a lot of space in your consciousness. Absolutely. I mean, I, I believe that uh, you know, I've come to this planet to wrestle with these themes mm-hmm. of, of manhood, and father, and all that stuff, and it just keeps repeating itself in different aspects of my life. And I mean, if if I had to make that, I probably should remake that movie because. It has so many holes in it. I was 20. Yeah, you were so young. I was 20, 20. I turned 21 while we were shooting that film. And I didn't know anything. So I was, you know, it's it's a film from the perspective of a 21 year old kid about what it means to be a man or, you know, what fatherhood is having not had one, not grown up with one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I should probably do this. I think sequel. it would be cool because yeah, it's, it's this time capsule, like what is a mind at that age? Like what is the preoccupation and what interests you and what problem are you trying to solve? But to figure that out, you know, as a mature adult now with everything that you've you know, gone through and experienced and all the growth that you've experienced, I think you could create like a, a, a sequel to that that could be powerful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I, I think it's, what, what do we call it though? I don't know, <laughs> that, that title yeah, comes later. The, I don't know what to say about that. I mean, it's, it's strange cause um, I'm, pr- I'm practicing so much in just the being part and not the telling part, mm-hmm. you know, for a long time I was 
uh, spending a lot of time performing. Look at, look at, I got it all figured out and I, you know, I have a lot to say and, and now I, I'm much more interested in just head down, chop wood, carry water and just be present in, in, in my you know, daily mm-hmm. practice really of, mm-hmm. of being the, that, that embodied man. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I haven't quite, and as I said, I was in mostly isolation and now I'm just coming out. It's like, how do I tell my story? Even this is awkward for me because I haven't had a lot of interviews over the past couple of years, yeah. um, especially to talk about something so personal. So I'm trying to find where that balance is between the beingness and then telling and communicating that mm-hmm. uh, to others. And when that compulsion arises to express yourself or to tell a story or to tell people the way it is, is that coming from an egoistic place? Is that coming from an older version of you or is there something more pure like in figuring out how to parse those two things? Yeah, well, I mean, I I got lost in the business of acting and filmmaking where I was trying to climb that ladder and always maneuvering put myself in a position where I could get that next role or make that next buck. So they could always be expanding and growing uh, and lost track of the art of expression. Mm-hmm. And the, the reason why I initially was drawn to filmmaking was to you know, be vulnerable and share something of myself. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, not entirely, but you know, more and more the money gigs <laughs> started taking yeah. precedent over you know, the, 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 the meaningful mm-hmm. gigs. And but that's the nature that of the business. Yeah, I mean, it did start that way. You were kind of this, you know, punk artist kid <laughs> who was all about purity and integrity. Uh, you, went to, you went to LaGuardia High, right? Like, which is like the fame school, yeah. did some acting there, went to college for a stint and kind of became an actor because you had a facility for it, but it was mostly, a way to fund these other artistic endeavors and interests that you had. I mean, in many ways, it was my ticket out of the hood. You know, I was like living pretty, you know, meager means, mm-hmm. and I didn't want to have to. I wanted, you know, wanted more. I wanted all the. I wanted the financial security. I wanted, you know, the the cool parties and all that. So that was the easiest route for me. To just I, I had I had the talent and I had people that were prompting me and you know asking me to come audition mm-hmm. and do stuff. So I had a lot of people that were wanting that of me. But my sense was that you would take these roles to kind of pay the bills. Yeah, but yeah. the heart was really somewhere else. I tr- well, I tried to make that work. I tried to sit in sort of this artistic integrity uh-huh. while it's still like robbing you know robbing Peter to pay Paul type thing. Like I'd go in, I'd make a couple of bucks in Hollywood and I'd come back and try and do real art. Right. And spend all my money on it. You were in bands and you were making documentaries exactly. and stuff like that. Yeah. yeah. And then entourage, like, you know, everything goes yeah. out the window. Yeah, I, I, said, I said robbing Peter to pay Paul, but I meant like Robin Hood. That's what I meant. That was the, mm. like the Robin yeah, Hood I, mentality. I get these money from the fat cats and ex- I'll put it ex- to a, a more. <laughs> <laughs> and, in, and in many ways, I'm still, can, I'm still in yeah. that, that trip. Aren't we yeah. all on some level? Yeah. I mean, this podcast is supported by sponsors and I love my sponsors, yes. but you know, Thank you like sponsors. we live in, a, we live in a, a, you know, a commercial world and, to some extent, we have to play by those rules if we want to function and you know share what we're here to share. Yes, yes. Well, 
We think so. We've been told that that's the the, the only way that right. we can structure. So help me our civilization. Help me reimagine this. Yeah. Well, that's what. So what's, what I've been doing now in mm-hmm. my life is focusing on the role of money and investments and how we actually build a, a civilization that serves not only humans but also the environment. Uh, sort of a, a more holistic approach to investing. So I started an impact investment company that has uh, you know, a certain philosophy, a certain approach to investing that is novel. It's, it's, it's sort of, um, it, it, it works within a capitalist system, but it also um, seeks not just ROI, return on investment, but also YBM, what we, we call as yields beyond money. Mm-hmm. You know, the things that are intangible, the things that are, you know, p- perhaps, uh, create meaning in in our lives, uh, the things that are in harmony with and interconnected with our natural systems, and so that's really what I've been focusing on. Right. Because I do believe that our economic system is a story that we built and we told, you know, and it's worked for us thus far. But you know, if you look around, it's it's just not working the way yeah. we thought it would, and we need to, I think, reinvent how we exchange value with one another and what it is that we're focusing on creating. Because money, capitalism incentivizes certain, the creation of certain types of businesses and certain types of material things that are um, on many levels, just not serving us anymore. Yeah. Well, it it promulgates a a zero sum perspective on everything. And it prioritizes, you know, quarterly gains over mm-hmm. the long-term interest of individuals and the planet. Right. I mean, you could, I could go on a long rant about that. And on some fundamental level, like from a Yuval Noah Harari perspective, like mm-hmm. the entire structure, the system of money and commerce, is built on a story, a social contract that yeah. is actually just illusion, right? We think of corporations as entities, but it's a couple pieces of paper and it's a collection of individuals and people. So how can we create a new story that's in better service to, you know, all of our interests? And I think the cynical would say, well, look, you're still a venture capitalist, you're investing in these companies, you're operating within the system and you can call it conscious capitalism or whatever you want, but are you not just doing the same thing? And how do you create a tangible like metric around you know, yields beyond money. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And well, that's the challenge, right? Yeah, that's, and, yeah. I, and I judge um, whether or not we're on the right track based on the amount of resistance we get, uh-huh. you know, and sort of calibrating the resistance. You can't do that. <laughs> what? Like you can't do that. Exactly. Like, oh, that's not possible. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, when, when and I've, I've been judging just the, the nervous systems of, of people that I've approached with this concept, and you know a lot of these guys have a lot of money enough to never worry again and yet in those moments you, you feel their heartbeat race a little bit and their breath speed up because the idea that they would be investing in something that wasn't purely focused on ROI although we do pretty pretty well anyway mm-hmm. but really looking at the things that are intangible and that's that's the that's the, that's the scary part is like the things, because we crave certainty. So we wanna see the numbers and we wanna make a, have an investment that's gonna guarantee a certain return so that we can have more dollars and cents in the bank, more zeros and ones you know, on the computer screen mm-hmm. of our bank account versus the things that 
are per- perhaps more more important are the things you can't you can't calculate. You can't. They're just beyond the edges of our calculators. It's the human to human shared experience. It's how we, you know, live in nature and connection and family and community and uh, a state of being, health, wellness, mental health, sense of self, intelligence, like all these things you can't, you know, mm-hmm. calculate so, so easily. And so it's a little bit more challenging, but I do believe that we have a, a winning formula if you want to get formulaic <laughs> yeah. to actually bridge that gap between making fine returns, ROI, and also putting an emphasis on the yields that are beyond money itself. Cause money in our current system is the focus, is the goal. When money in our, in our minds is not a goal to, to accumulate more and more and more, it's the tool that we use to create the things that we want to see right. in the world. Or a byproduct of something mission-based. And, and, and by the way, you, you, know, you know, one of my favorites, uh, favorite ideas is you can't be rich unless your neighbors are rich, right? If you buy the nicest house, the biggest mansion, the most beautiful, pristine piece of property, and there are slums all around you, are you really wealthy? You're gonna have to build higher walls. You're gonna have to be more isolated. But if you distributed that wealth, or at least it was distributed naturally within a system to as many people and everybody had a nice house, then you could walk down the block for miles and, and there'll be you know, rolling fruit forests and people's yards and people would be out playing and it'd be a safe neighborhood. And that's wealth, mm. right? You don't have to get locked up in your castle because you're afraid for your life or you're afraid to leave. So I, I sort of, I apply that same philosophy is, yeah, I mean, is it great to have a lot of money in your bank account? I don't know. I mean, it's just sitting there, right? What's really great is to have uh, the richness of life that comes from spending your money in wise ways, so that the return is, you know, more connection, more friends, more mm-hmm. family, more uh, health and wellness, um, those things, experiences. Yeah, yeah I, I think that's a very powerful statement, and I think it's buttressed by the fact that you tried it the other way, right? Like you're coming from a place of experience with this. It's one thing to say, you know, academically, this may or may not be true, but you lived a life of, you know, uh, of indulgence, I guess would be a fair enough word to say it. I don't know how you would characterize it, but you kind of had all that and, and deployed it in a self-serving way as probably, you know, most young yeah. people in their twenties would, only to discover that it left you feeling empty and that the wealth that the kind of sense of wealth wealth being defined in a more broadly in a more broad context you know brings your life meaning by yeah. deploying resources to the benefit of others yeah it's the zero sum game versus right. the infinite game right the world um, is infinitely abundant because the the limited definition of wealth when you you know spun your example of the mansion amidst the slums as human beings we're kind of you know, predisposed to measure wealth only in comparison to others. So if mm-hmm. everybody, if you deploy that wealth and you're living in a, in, a, in a robust community where everybody's needs are met, are you wealthy? Yes, in the broader definition, yeah. in the limited definition, you're not because your house is the same size as everybody else, right? Right, right. I so, mean, I, and, I'll, and I'll just, I'll, uh, I'll make a, a celebrity uh, analogy um, to, <laughs> that, that I think, um, 
that makes me laugh because I've, I've been there, I've experienced it. So I would often get paid stupid, stupid amounts of money to show up to a club. Uh-huh. Okay, let's just, I'll, I'll tell you frankly, right. that's what would happen. They'd pay me a big check so that I would show up to their club so that their club would look cool or that mm-hmm. you know, they, they could say that I was there. And so it would get, bring up the cool factor of the, of the club. I don't know why they hired me, but some people think I'm pretty cool. But anyway, they would take, they would basically, now I'm the product because they paid me and they would place me in the VIP section with the velvet ropes and the right. bouncers. <laughs> and I would be sitting there all by myself alone <laughs> while everybody's out in the club dancing and having uh, fun. And I'm like, I want a zoo be- animal. Exactly, a totally zoo, total zoo animal. Um, I wanna be out there like dancing and having fun with people. And so I would, you know, I'd tell the bouncers like, you know, I'm, I'm sitting there looking at their asses, right? Like I'm sitting there looking at these big bouncers butts and I'm like, guys, you know, I don't, it's cool. You guys can go somewhere else. I'm mm. remove the velvet ropes, you re- remove the velvet ropes. And then suddenly the commoners come in and start hanging out in the VIP section. And when you have people in the VIP section that aren't in isolation and aren't up on like a pedestal, Suddenly the VIP section looks a lot like the rest of the club. And now it's- You're happier, they're happier. Right, but the, the, the club owners, they didn't get their, their money's worth because mm-hmm. now it's just another section with people having fun as opposed to creating that mystique and creating mm-hmm. the separation, mm-hmm. which elevates me to this status where people can gawk and you know, like taking pictures of right. zebras behind a- Right. In a zoo. The counter narrative is that, look, if you come to this club, you actually might get to hang out with this guy as opposed to look at him past a rope. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't that be more alluring yeah. to their customers? Well, once you start hanging out with me, it's not that special. <laughs> so I, you know. Yeah, but they can take the pap shot. A lot know? of these celebrities need the velvet rope because when you break down the facade, it's like, they're just people, right? Mm-hmm. It's like, not that interesting. I'm a pretty good dancer, but other than that. yeah. Coming back for more, but first. Okay, back to the show. Well, what's wild, and I know you've told this story a million times, but what's wild about the whole entourage thing is the meta nature of it all, because in so many ways it parallels this trajectory that you went on in your personal life where the lines got incredibly blurred between the character you were portraying on television <laughs> and the way you were acquitting yourself in your private life and, and kind of public life as you. Yeah, I mean, the, I, the lines are so blurred, I, I can't even tell you mm-hmm. what was what, you know, right. like when were, when were you Vinny and when were you Adrian? Well, you know, so acting is uh, really just tapping into the parts of yourself that are true and honest to a character that's not you, right? So just borrowing the piece, because we, you know, we have all of it in us mm-hmm. and we choose to be, you know, you choose to be rich at, at a certain age, you decided this is how I'm gonna behave and these are the patterns that I'm gonna express as rich. And then me, Adrian, and, but we have all of it. You know, you, if you think about the time when you were in eighth grade and you were going to high school and you're like, oh, it's an opportunity for me to totally change my look, you know, and no one's gonna know, no one's uh-huh. gonna 
call me out as being a fraud or inauthentic because nobody knows me yet. So you can actually change yourself. So we have all of that within us. And in acting, that's that's what we do, right? We we find the parts of in our, within ourselves that can that are the villain that could mm-hmm. do what that villain does, or the parts of in ourselves that are romantic, and we can play that that romantic part. And um, you know, at the end of the day, that's you know that, that what, what was the question? I'm sorry, I don't even know what the question yeah, yeah. was. Oh, well, the, the meta nature, the surreal, oh, oh, you know, nature of of playing that character. Yes, and, and the yes, way you were living exactly. So. When I got the role of Vince, I, I, I said no to that role. Yeah, you were like doing a documentary in Mexico or something like that, right? I, yeah, I was still attempting to maintain my creative integrity by doing a documentary about Cuban hip hop. I was sneaking into Cuba um, and, and I had a thousand dollars to my name. I had a camera, I was gonna make that film. And then I was like, you know what? I'll, I'll make money later. And in the meantime, I'll make a great film. And then I get this offer for this show called Entourage. I read the script and I'm like, this is the most superficial, you know, this is not, these are not the kind of values that I wanna promote. And I said, no. And then they kept coming back to me and I was like, I don't do TV. It's not TV, it's HBO. And no, I don't, I, you know, I, don't, I, don't, I kept saying no, essentially. Mm-hmm. And then finally, I, you know, I came to terms with the fact that if I didn't say yes, eventually I was gonna, you know, Hollywood would turn its back on me right. entirely. Your manager was gonna fire you. Right, right. yeah, he's find a new, find a new manager. Um, and so I did end up taking the role and I had to, I mean, I would say that I had the hardest time out of all the, the, the cast and they're, they're all fine actors, but to, to play that part was so, different than who I was at the time. And so it was not easy to become Vince. And the more I did it, yeah, the, the, the more praise I would get from the directors and producers and creators of the show. And then the show comes out and then now the fans start giving me thumbs mm-hmm. up. Then I would go out in the world and people would expect, they wanted me to be the character because they're so familiar with it. So I'd walk into a room and I would get instant approval and then rewarded every time I showed up in the Vince milieu. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I started to indulge that for for the sake of the fans, but also because I was parlaying that into other opportunities. And, and then suddenly the thing you're performing, the thing you're pretending becomes you. Right when you do, when you do it enough. Right, the lines get incredibly yeah. blurred and, and, and I suspect, the defense mechanisms come up or the rationalizations like, well, yeah, but at some point I'm gonna get back to the documentaries or you know, what is the narrative that you're telling yourself to justify the behavior or does yeah. that just go out the window? Well, yeah, look, I, I, I did make Teenage Paparazzo at the height of my right. celebrity. So I was still on some level maintaining my connection to art. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and, and remaining grounded on some level, uh, which is I think what allowed me to come back to earth now. Cause I, had I been, if I, if I truly believed, you know, there's, you, you have to believe, you have to allow yourself to believe that you're somehow worthy of, of the attention and worthy. Otherwise it feels so, 
dissociative. Like you're just like, it's mm-hmm. not. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot of actors that don't feel worthy of that. And that's what really creates the psychological dilemma. It, yeah, yeah. No, it, 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 it's a tricky thing because nobody really is better than anyone else, right? No one's somehow, you know, you, and you have to make excuses for it. And it, over, over time, over history, it happens with you know, wealthy people or people somehow convince themselves that they're better than other people. And it's because, you know, if, if you're, you know, royalty, it's because your, bl- your blood is different and you're somehow mm-hmm. special. And there's this rationalization that you somehow deserve all of the riches and the spoils of this thing. So you rationalize it so that you can keep having more of it and taking more and taking more. Because if, if, you, re- if you realize that, you know, somehow there's something amiss, you know, then you start coming down to earth and you have to start letting it all go. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> Which and, is really hard. <laughs> I mean, and you're in this for like a decade, right? 20 years. So, 12, yeah. you know, the constant mm. um, approval and the feeding of the ego, mm. I mean, over that extended period of time has to really do a number on you. Yeah. Well, and, and attention, attention is, it's a drug of sorts. It's humans, crave attention we it's like a, you know like a puppy you can you know mm-hmm. pet them and and they'll like it but humans need like that approval that acknowledgement that you know the attention itself and in a in a media based culture where all the attention goes to the the few that you know get clicked on the rest of us start to feel like where you know who's looking out for me you break down the the breakdown of communities and the mm-hmm. family unit and people are living in more isolation on their phones and in technology and in their little tiny one bedroom apartments. So yeah, it's, it's, it's intoxicating to have all that attention. You want more of it. Yeah, and yet, I mean, when I watched Teenage Paparazzo, you had you know, a, a significant level of self-awareness around it to at least explore the meaning of it. Cause the, 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 real, the real narrative of that movie is exploring what fame is, what creates fame and what does it all mean? Like going behind, you know, the velvet rope of the media machine to see how, you know, the sausage is made. Yeah. You know, and, and, and you know, when you kind of ingratiate yourself finally into the paparazzi community <laughs> and they accept you, like yeah. you're not there to like, you know, <laughs> put them on blast or anything right, like exactly. that. I mean, it's pretty fascinating that that whole like kind of subculture and ecosystem. Uh, yeah, it was, that was such a fun movie to make. It really was. I got to infiltrate uh, the, the media machine from like the vantage of a celebrity. You know, I had a lot of access that you know, another filmmaker wouldn't have. Mm-hmm. And to, to be able to use my position and take advantage of you know, what I had accomplished as an actor to make a film. I, nobody else, I, the, the thing I'm proud of is nobody else could have made that film because I don't think anybody else would have made that film. Right. If you're famous, you don't wanna rock the boat. You know, mm-hmm. you wanna just like, okay. In fact, a, a lot of the entourage guys pulled me aside and they're like, what are you doing with this film? Cause I was hanging out with Paris Hilton and like, mm-hmm. you know, s- glimpsing into like her experience from her perspective. And of course, when you hang out with Paris Hilton all the gossip rags start, you know, writing about it. Right. They don't and know. You create your own, you're, it's so easily manipulated when you're like, I'm gonna go to Paris's house and we're gonna walk out together and Austin's gonna yeah, take our picture. Exactly. And then two days later, it's gonna be everywhere. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and the, 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 the opportunity to just, indulge the meta-ness of that hall of mirrors where mm-hmm. it's, we, we're creating the stories, the paparazzi are 
taking the bait and they're using those stories to generate for their publications. And then now we're making a film about that. And then Austin, a little paparazzi is becoming, it was so- He's becoming famous in the making of that, like was, the, the meta layers of it, like just continue to unfold. Yeah, and now we are living in that exact meta reality, the fractured, right? you know, hall of mirrors that, you know, that I think that movie sort of preempted, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and you mentioned, you know, we, we were early days, it was, you know, Instagram didn't exist. It was right. It was all about those magazines. And, right. And, uh, you know, the internet was a new thing no, at the time. Not nearly as relevant as they were then, but now the phone is a hundredfold what yeah. those things kind of did to our brains. Yeah, and there are all these people that have forty-one million followers, and I'm like, who is yeah, that? I've, like, never, I've never heard of that person. <laughs> exactly. How could forty-one million people know who this person yeah, is? And it, I've never yeah. heard of this person. Exactly. And I there was I think there was like a maybe a thirty-second little edited clip where we tip a hat to the coming technologies. It was like, we just, cause they were new, like mm-hmm. Twitter. Uh, yeah, Twitter yeah. and Facebook. Facebook. Like just literally a one second. That was it. The and then time. it was like, what's gonna come next? All this. And mm-hmm. so, yeah. Yeah, yeah. it just seems, it, just seem, it seems so innocent now comparatively, I suppose. Totally. But it's the same thing. It's just writ a little bit larger. Mm-hmm. Um, but to be in the mix of all of that, you know, for that long of a period of time and, and you know, um, having to kind of be a part of that machine while trying to maintain some level of dignity and integrity, like while you're getting paid tons of money and, you know, all the, you know, experiences that, that come with that being, what were you like 27, 28 years old? Yeah, I mean, that's when it really hit. Yeah, mm-hmm. when it took off. Mm-hmm. And so what was the interior experience mm. of the young Adrian while you were in the midst of all of it? Yeah, I was, I was, I, I fancied myself a spiritual person. I was a good person, you know, but, you know, in retrospect, I, I made a lot of compromises to my, my soul, my, you know, my ethics um, in order to keep climbing. Mm-hmm. You know, keep getting to the next level. Yeah, and, and I and I was doing environmental work, and I was right. Starting, That's you know, always been a part of who you are. Yeah, like I think there's this temptation to look at that experience and say you were off your path or you were on the wrong trajectory. Mm-hmm. And I think you were on the correct trajectory the entire like that. Those experiences needed to happen in order for you to become the person you are today. It's yeah. all it's all fine. Yeah. It's all good. Like well we want to be reductive. We want to like make it pat, you know. Oh, mm-hmm. you, you know, you were on the wrong path, now you're on the right path. It's, you know, it's messy. Life is messy and I guess I like to think of it more as like not you know, binary but more embodied like mm-hmm. are you are you more connected with your your true nature versus ignoring parts of yourself in order to have this little ride and you know, the illusion of self, like, oh, I'm this big Hollywood fancy guy, you know, as opposed to what's really going on deep down inside and what's your purpose here on this planet mm-hmm. to, to, to serve the world and to, you know, be, you know, to, 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 have, to be of service to your neighbors. That's right. how I see it now. Yeah, this was an experience that you had that was an expression of some aspect of, of who you are. Mm-hmm. Uh, it taught you a lot. You've 
learned lessons from it mm-hmm. and that's allowed you to mature and express yourself in yeah. a different way. And more way. importantly, I survived it. Yeah. Because <laughs> some <laughs> people, people aren't don't. that lucky. Yeah. yeah no, I know. So I, I'm glad I survived it and came out the other side so that I could you know, bring the gold of that wisdom of the experience and then now share it. Right, so walk me through the process of, of kind of coming to terms with that experience and you know, wrestling with it, reckoning with it to kind of motivate you to find more meaning or go on this quest towards greater self-actualization. Yeah, there's a predominant perspective, I think in liberal culture that's, yeah, that, that thinks that somehow we can save the world, that we, that we can save the environment, that, you know, that the government's gonna you know, pay for all these services that are gonna help you out there. I've really come to terms with how important it is that I take personal responsibility for myself and I take ownership of how I am and how I you know, um, show up. I think Christian Murdy said, uh, it was like, uh, we heal the world when there's a transformation of the individual. And that, that mentality really struck home for me because I was trying to save the world. I was trying to you know, make all this money, do all this stuff to go out and proselytize and tell everybody how they needed to behave in order to help the oceans or uh, do this, that, and the other. And I really did believe that I was, I was a good guy. I did all the right things. I was, look, I'm making all this money. So like, obviously I'm doing something right. Mm-hmm. And then I started to chip away at that, that belief system. And I started to see, look under the hood and I realized there was so much that I was ignoring. And a lot of the things that I was doing where it was hurting other people or was at least ignoring their experience for my own sake. And, and, I, and I had to get clean and take responsibility for what I was actually doing and get, I guess, the, you know, it's the awakening where you finally open your eyes and you realize what's actually happening as opposed to just what you believe, mm-hmm. what you're projecting, you know, what the fantasy of, of your life is. And so the first step was opening my eyes and seeing the harsh reality of what actually is what's what is not uh, just what I'd been, you know, indulging. Yeah, yeah. There's this idea that the impact that you seek to have on the world is calibrated to the extent to which you are embodying that value system in your own self, right? Mm-hmm. We can say we're, you know, I'm trying to do this, that, and the other, but if you're living in a manner that's incongruent with that, mm-hmm. or you have yet to reach a certain level of maturity where you're espousing those values, where you can actually walk the talk, um, it will, you may, you may have some success with that, but ultimately you're never gonna achieve potential with that and it will ring somewhat shallow. Yes. So that awakening piece, like was there a specific moment or a bottom? Like I'm Mm. somebody who's been in recovery for a long time. So I tend to like Mm. look at these things through that lens of, you know, kind of 12 step vernacular. Mm -hmm. But that idea of, you know, that low moment where it all comes crashing down or was it a slow? Yeah, I actually got into the 12 step, Mm. uh, you know, philosophy, I guess, which has been very helpful to me, uh, I, I 
came to let, let, you know, believe in God, you know, through this process, you know, I started opening myself up to, you know, for, for so long, I was so arrogant. And so in my head and, uh, you know, cynical and godless and nihilistic, mm-hmm. uh, really ultimately. until I started embracing some of these frameworks, 12 steps as an incredible framework uh, that has a lot of wisdom, a lot of, yeah. And I, I, I guess there was this gnawing sense of dread that something was bad was gonna happen to me because things were just too good. Mm-hmm. You know, when you're high and like you're half asleep, things feel very cozy and comfy, but you're not able to actually see what's, what's, what's on the horizon. But I felt something, you know, and I didn't know what it was. And I was like, things can't be this good forever, right? Can they? You know, flying around the world, mm-hmm. going to all the parties, making all the money, getting all the shows. And then rock bottom hit, hit suddenly. And it was from like a totally unlikely place. I was uh, dating somebody uh, who, who basically in no uncertain words said, you are a horrible human being and you need to take a big look at yourself. I'm out and dumped me. Mm-hmm. And I was so incensed and it was incredulous. I was like, you're gonna dump me? <laughs> Have you seen my house? You know, <laughs> Have you seen my status? Have you seen all the things that I've accomplished? You're gonna leave me? Uh, I couldn't believe it. And on the way out, she gave me a list of things to look at. And uh, I, I took that list and I was like, listen, I love you. And I think you're out of your mind. This list is correct. Like none of this is me. This isn't, I don't, I, I'm fine with all this stuff, but because I love you and I respect you, I promise I will take a, a hard look at all this. Uh-huh. So after she left, I took, I sat down, I started looking at the list <sighs> and slowly but surely I started to realize that she was right. And that one after the other were things that I had all but so what was on our list? <laughs> <laughs> Come on. Well, you, you know, your relationship to sex, uh, your relationship to drugs and alcohol and escapism and uh, <laughs> indulgences, chasing shiny objects, um, selfishness, you know, and, and indulging in destructive patterns, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And I was like, what are you talking about? I'm fine. I got it all figured out. Everything's great. I do. I'm a UN Environment Goodwill Ambassador for Christ's sake. You know, mm-hmm. It's like, come right. on. As long as you have that, that it helps justify the other stuff. Meanwhile, you're having yeah. fun and your life is actually going well. Yeah. So and it's hard, the it's re- hard to And, and the confirmation yeah. bias, like right. everybody in the you're world is telling me, keep going. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You're on the right path. Keep making, you know, television shows. I had uh, this woman on the show yesterday named Anna Lemke and she's a psychiatrist and runs the addiction medicine clinic at Stanford. Mm-hmm. Um, she's got this new book out called Dopamine Nation that's about to come out. And what's interesting about her thesis in this book, she shows up in that documentary, Social Dilemma, like mm-hmm. the idea that, that we need to look at addiction more broadly, especially in this technological era where everything is impulsing us in an addictive way. But what I had never really kind of fully grasped until I read this book was this idea, and this, is, this will come back to you, that when we're 
in this relentless pursuit of pleasure, and you're somebody who is kind of living that at a higher level, that ultimately the pain that we've crafted our lives to so desperately avoid mm-hmm. will slingshot back, you know, in great proportion mm-hmm. to the extent to which we're trying to avoid it, right? So that, you know, relentless pursuit of being just ahead of the FOMO, you know, and chasing the party mm-hmm. and doing all the mm-hmm. things when you're in this perpetual state of of dopamine inducement, mm-hmm. you know, at a at a crazy level is not only unsustainable, but is setting you up for this great fall. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's it. Yeah. That's right. So boom, the woman boom. leaves you. Boom. Um, with the laundry list of character defects. Yeah. Uh, and and I, ha- I, I, I started a long road of going into the pain, you know, going into the suffering and the, the, all the things deep down inside that I'd been avoiding probably for 30 years since I was, you know, eight or younger, all that childhood trauma that um, I was masking or floating, just hovering just above. And it, it hurts. So of course you want to avoid it. Of course it makes sense. I was protecting myself from it. But now at this stage in my life, I was like, okay, let's, you know, let's look, let's look mm-hmm. in, under the bed. Let's look in the closet. Let's see what boogeyman's are there. Right. And, and what know. was the process for doing that? Well, first, um, I mean, it was just a long process of, well, first like gain, getting advice, you know, asking for help, um, reading books, learning, uh, you know, finally reading that book, uh, Iron John that my mom gave me when mm. I was, you know, when I was younger oh, and I- Robert Bly. Yeah, which yeah. I never read, you yeah, know, yeah, I'm, yeah. Like, I'm like, oh, I don't need to be- he's the, he's the OG in the whole kind of divine masculine space, yeah, right? Yeah. Like go out into the, into the woods and, you know, bang on drums and stuff. Yeah, connect with your beast, connect yeah. with the beast within you, become dangerous and then, you know, transcend that, but, you know, use it for, for good, I guess. Um, but become embodied and, and, you know, become all, you know, the range. To, to me, it's not about being good or bad. It's about, you know, coming to terms with in, in being in connection with all of the layers of, of, of your, your nature. Mm-hmm. So, but first I had to stop all the, the patterns, all the escape patterns. So I had to, you know, I, I, went, I, I went celibate for some time. I stopped drinking. Mm-hmm all the things that I would use, all the tools I would use right. to escape, all the dopamine fixes that I had yeah. laying around all over town. <laughs> Going on a dopamine fast of sorts. Yeah, yeah I did a year of celibacy. I mean, it was the most instructive mm-hmm. in, in early sobriety. I did that and it was so revelatory and it, it just puts this mirror up and you realize, at least in my case, like I realized how much of my behavior was oriented around gaining female approval and how mm-hmm. fucked up my disposition was or, or my habits were around relating to the opposite sex. hundred percent, yeah, I share that, that, that sentiment. Yeah, and you know, and, and all the things that come with it too, you know, the, you know, the, the, the pornography and the way it shapes your relationship to sex itself and, you know, um, and then, you know, the one, the, the biggest, the biggest thing that really uh, helped me was recognizing that that I had a, a, a deep 
hurt because of what I'd been taught at a younger age about sex, mm. you know? And, and that was from disembodied men or, or men who were dysfunctional or um, destructive, toxic, if you will. Meaning that you should just be in pursuit of it or that it's a notch in your belt or. Yeah, in, in the absence of having that divine masculine role model growing up, I, there were a number of men who would teach me how to womanize or how to, to lie or get away with things, uh, indulge in, in, in women as opposed to be in service of or respect of mm-hmm. you know, our counterparts. And then men who were frankly in, inappropriate with me sexually, who you know, had you know, some pedophilia tendencies that you know, I, I was around when I was at a young age. Mm-hmm. You know, there's this one guy who um, you know, used to tell me like dirty jokes when I was younger. And, and I thought it was funny, but it can, I realized at an older age, like that's, I, I excuse that kind of behavior because that's, that's how I was trained essentially. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was normal. Yeah. And you were desperate for a male figure in your life, I, I imagine. Of course, yeah. 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 And that gets imprinted. Yeah. Oh, and, and, you know, and then of course, just not being, being there. My, my, you know, my, my father just bounced when I was younger. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so that, so I, I learned that, how to escape, how to run, yeah. how to not be there. It was interesting in the documentary when you meet him and he's so, I mean, the word passive is used, but he, he's so bereft of emotional tools to even know how to communicate properly. And you relate your own kind of passivity with his, but I just saw somebody who, who was extremely, like just lacked any emotional aptitude whatsoever. Yeah, yeah. So, a sweet guy, mm-hmm. you know, but I think he sort of hides behind the sweetness and it, he should read Iron John, <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. because we, I, I believe there's, there's, a, there's a male frequency that is, that is harsh and, you know, and if you don't connect with that, you know, you, you know, you let the world just throw you around, you know? Well, it's an interesting moment right now in the conversation around masculinity. I feel like masculinity has been just lumped in with toxic masculinity as one thing. Mm -hmm. And I know, you know, a big part of of your journey and, and what you talk about is, is a reclaiming or a redefining of masculinity in a healthy context. You can call it divine masculinity or any number of things. But in this moment right now, there's this sense that we need to be embarrassed as men or we're not allowed to be men or uh, it's unclear what the appropriate role is for a man because of the culture. So we should just sort of step back and it's confusing as somebody who's a father also, like what is the role? Like, okay, provider, protector, but I also need to be emotionally available and I need to be strong, but I also need to be the guy who goes to every school event. And you know, it's, it becomes like, it's much more complicated than it was in the era of, 
you know, our parents or my parents who are yeah. a little bit older than yours, um, where it was a little bit more binary and yeah. that had its problems, of course. Um, but I find oftentimes like, I can't do all of these things all of the time, right? Yeah, it's hard. yeah. Um, I don't know if it has to be that hard though. Um, if you're, the way I see it, heart-centered masculine energy leads like your, your values and the direction that you're oriented to comes from, you know, your ethics, your heart, like, you know, your love for, you know, your family, protecting the world, protecting people, doing the right thing. That's where your direction comes from. And then it's all the other parts of you as a man, I, I find like the, the, the beast in me that helps me go execute mm-hmm. and go make it so. And to protect, yes, I have to, I have to learn to be dangerous. I, in fact, like when I, didn't, when I wasn't in touch with my ability to, to be destructive, when I, I was almost, you know, in many ways emasculated by a sort of a feminist ideology where no one, like culturally, n- no one wanted me to be dangerous. So they made me, they, they, they emasculated that part of me. And then I became more dangerous because all of that came out in shadow. Mm-hmm. And I started doing things that were, were subconsciously destructive. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't stepping into that, that beast part of me to, to actually protect and serve women and my community. Mm. And so I feel like you have to be in touch with that, but like be oriented from the heart space. Yeah. As an actor, that's sort of traditionally conjured as a a feminine expression, right? It's a a more feminine energy Um, to be an artist, to be a musician, those things would be associated, you know, at that end of the spectrum. On some level, I feel like the the conversation around divine masculinity has an inherent femininity to it because you're you're saying we need to learn how to connect with the heart, which is not traditionally a masculine attribute, right? Well, we're, so it's we're, about, we're both, right? right? I mean, of course, we're all yeah. we're we're an amalgam of these energies. So yeah. first, we have to recognize the inherent femininity within all of us as males. Yeah, yeah, I, I think. You know, maybe back in the day, things were more binary and simple, in which men attempted to be, you know, so masculine that you know it was just like undeniable that you were a man. Right? You had to prove it uh-huh. so much that you lost touch of the subtlety and the dynamic within ourselves. But now, I, I you know, I, I find myself to be really, really, you know, even even leveled, still very much in touch with my feminine, and yet I've started to cultivate and fashion the more edgier masculine parts of myself to, to really bring myself into balance. Mm. And what does that look like? Like, how have you done that? Um, <laughs> well, I'm, I now live on a farm, so right. I have plenty of- Hands are in the soil. Hands are in the soil, you know, f- yeah, using my, my body and my hands mm. and working my muscles and lifting heavy things and building things and, you know, wanting to protect my kingdom and setting it up so that there's a safe space for people to come and be, you know, to, to, for my family to live in. Yeah, yeah. Um, so much of this, you know, in addition to being, you know, in this period of time where, 
you know, so many young people grow up without dads. We're we're also in a in a culture in which we've we've been robbed of traditional rites of passage, mm-hmm. you know, that teach us how to become heart-centered men in so many ways. And as a result, it's no surprise that you see these movements out there of of men congregating, trying to recapture some aspect of that or or to create that for themselves later in life in their own lives. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's also why you see all these, you know, whether it's Spartan or like hmm. all these challenges or mm-hmm. running a marathon, it's because Sports. we don't have what we used to have yeah. as tribal cultures yeah. that would put us through the ringer and teach us what it means to do something hard and the confidence that comes with that and the kind of um, acceptance that you would receive within the tribal community for passing those, you know, rights. Yeah. Absolutely, you know, uh, as our culture expands and becomes more spread out throughout the world, uh, it's harder and harder to have that, that those intimate rites of passage that is, are passed down. So then we have these, these sort of placeholder mm-hmm. or these, these alternatives, which are stand-ins. On, yeah, stand-ins for, for that. Um, Sports teams and you know all that kind of stuff. Uh, I, I I personally have been doing a lot of men's work, working with other men to to bring each other through these rites of passage, mm-hmm. uh, and it's been so so important, so helpful. And what are those experiences like? Like therapeutic or more I, like tactile? I mean, experience li- life saving. You know, just enriching. Just. Uh, feel so blessed to have the kinds of men that I do in my life to which I never had you know I never had brothers I never had those those parental role models male parental role models but now I do through my brothers and now I'm an adult I'm a man I I now can start to to work on being that role model for others but to have other men to to model things for me and to push against me and to mm-hmm. hold me accountable. Iron sharpens iron. So there's a lot of, you know, the, the, the masculine energy wants to have that pushback and that the wrestling or the, you know, the horseplay uh, is, is so important. And then, you know, the, the, the desire, the, the, the philosophical impetus to, to make the world a better place. You know, I used to hang out with people who, wasn't really interested in making the world a better place or just mm-hmm. where's the next fix or you know, where's the next good time? A lot of Machiavellian, how can I get mine and how can I exploit the situation to make more money or get more fame or get more things? Now the men that I surround myself with want to lead the world into, I guess, a, a, a better, more stable mm-hmm. way of being. Yeah. It's great, man. Yeah, it's awesome. How do we scale this up? Yeah, um, we've talked about it, you know, because it's not fair. It's like, how can you be rich if your neighbors, you can't be rich unless your neighbors are rich. You can't be fully divine masculine if your neighbors aren't, you know, we we, we have to do this on, on mass, like mm-hmm. at scale. And, and there's not one size fits all, but I would encourage everybody to seek, seek, Groups seek local groups that meet in person uh, to, to to wrestle with this because there's not one formula, but it's just showing up, and that's that's the the most important lesson that I've learned from my men's groups. 
there's not one thing you're supposed to learn except just to show up. Don't, don't retreat, don't dip because we all, all of us in the group have, and we've all, we've all shared this, that we all have imposter sy- syndrome. Like, why do I belong here? You know, this sense of belonging, like, oh, th- all these men are amazing. Who am I to be here with these incredible humans? And they all feel the same way. And everybody is wrestling with the, the, the self-doubt or the mm-hmm. insecurity. And, and so we just remind ourselves, just keep showing up, just keep being vulnerable and keep opening yourself because when you do, it helps the group and we help each other. So I would just say to you out there, uh, if, if you are seeking more, you want more from life and from, you wanna be, you wanna improve yourself and as Krishnamurti says, tra- transform the individual and go find others mm-hmm. and do that together. But all you really have to do is just show up. And be honest, mm-hmm. that's the big piece. And I think a lot of men you know, really struggle with um, the ability to you know, summon the courage to be vulnerable, especially amongst other men, mm-hmm. but by creating a safe space in order for that to be communicated, I think the benefits of that, you know, can't be overstated. I mean, this is something I learned, you know, immediately in 12 step. And I, I of course get a lot of that out of men's groups that I go to in that context, but I also have another men's group that I meet with once a week and it's like seven guys, it's mediated by a therapist. Been doing it for coming up probably up coming up on three years now. Nice. Um, and it's just been unbelievable. Mm-hmm. And that's not an addiction based one. That's just, we get together. Here's what's going on with me. What's going on with you. Yep. We mutually support each other. And now we know each other so well that, that we can, we, we, know, we know everybody's blind spots mm-hmm. or we've seen the patterns. Like you keep doing this thing right, yeah. and you say you're not gonna do it and then you've done it again. Or right. we give the feedback and the person doesn't take the feedback and then we have to deal with the problem in the aftermath of it. And it's just been amazing, you know? Yeah. I, and it's something that I think, you know, again, to like look to camera, like if you're out there, this is something you can do in your own community with your friends. Yeah. Maybe you get a therapist involved or somebody else who has some level of expertise, but if you don't have access to that, there's nothing stopping you from getting a group of dudes together to just talk in a safe space where it's like, this is confidential. Right. And the, but the intention is different than like getting together with your friends and going out to a bar. Of course. Or getting with your friends and going out and like, you know, four-wheeling. No, like we're, the, not, we're not going to watch the game and it's not right. activity-based. Right. Like this is very focused. Right, and that, and that is maybe the challenge because we haven't been taught how to do that necessarily, right. you know? Mm-hmm. So I guess maybe not to oversimplify, it's like, oh, just so easy, just go do it. But, um, you know, I guess it's important to just note that it's getting together with other men, specifically men, um, and sitting in a, a, an allotted time in a safe space where you communicate vulnerably and it's very uh, confidential so that you can start to open up some of the lower, the deeper layers of what's going on inside that, you know, get pushed down because of the daily grind or because of, you know, life that um, takes precedent. So how have you calibrated the growth for yourself? Like when you think about what's important to you now versus then, can you gauge that 
with some level of objectivity? Um, I'm, I'm in such a good place now. Um, I don't, dare I say, I'm not in a, an overt growth period. I'm more in now, let me take what I've learned and start applying it in my life. So that's what I'm doing. Um, mm. you know, I spent the past two, two and a half years in, in <laughs> with a lot of challenge and struggle and learning and growth and shedding and rethinking re everything. And now based on what I've learned, I can go out and start to, to do, to build, to create. So it's a really, really exciting time for mm -hmm. me. Um, and, and I decided to express that by buying land in, in Texas and building a community and uh, doing a lot of the things that I would tell other people to do, you know, get, get in touch with nature, connect mm -hmm. with the, the land and grow your own food. And while well, make... you're living in Brooklyn. <laughs> exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly, <laughs> exactly. So um, yeah, and it's, uh, it, I feel great. And, and I'm starting to learn some of the skills that I think my spirit craved building uh, carpentry. I used to be so, you know, I didn't want to be dirty. You know, it was like, didn't like bugs and <laughs> nature was scary. And now, you know, now, I, now I'm like dancing with it. And mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's opened up a whole aspect of myself that I, that is, is just so, it's grounding. It's yeah. grounding is what it is. You yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Oh, and it's it, stable. It's uh you're in a healthy relationship. You've got this farm, you're growing food. You got your permaculture certification, I did. I right? I got my permaculture certification, yeah. And yeah. that kind of thing of having your hands in the dirt is you know, the microcosm of the macrocosm conversation about mm -hmm. how can we live more in alignment with nature? Mm -hmm. you know, how can we create greater harmony, not just with respect to the relationship with the land and the foods that we eat, but how we think about and practice commerce and how we live our professional lives and how we navigate relationships. Like everything is a dance and it's all about like moving towards greater symbiosis. Yeah. Yeah. And I get to express my unique perspective of what that looks like in my little world, right? And mm -hmm. I get to be a laboratory for what's possible. And, and I think we all need to, on some level experiment with new ways of being in, in, in community and new ways of exchanging value that, that aren't what we're told. You know, it's not all about the stock market or dollars and uh, currency. Sometimes, you know, there are other ways that we can really start to support each other. It's not all just pursuing the, the American dream, which I think it's pretty much all but debunked at this point, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. uh, so, so this has been really exciting. Uh, right, right now we're, we're looking to invite people to, to live with us as well on the land. We have plenty of space to have a few people building on, on that particular right. property. And so we're, we're exploring all the different ways that we can structure the agreement amongst people mm -hmm. on how to, to live and share space mm -hmm. and, and share effort and contribute so that we can be uh, additive, not extractive from nature itself. So nature focused, nature centered and nature being a shareholder, you know, within the community. Mm -hmm. It's inspirational 
but I also like the the kind of knee jerk that I have in my mind is we've been trying to figure this out for a long time. Every time there's some communal experiment, personalities get involved and it ends up imploding. Sure. It it turns into, you know, wild, wild country or some version of that, you know. Right, right. And so how do you avoid those pitfalls? Like what can be learned from other experiments in alternative living arrangements to find a new perfected way of doing it that is harmonious? And I think that's exactly the right yeah. questioning. You know, that's the right line of questioning because it hasn't worked, right? We, or, or maybe the ones that have worked, we just don't hear about because they're working. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's always the ones that collapse and are you know have some sensational cult leader uh, and, and a bunch of Kool Aid that we hear about, right? So right. those those stories strike the imagination, our imagination, and they're fear based, right? I mean Charles Manson or you know Jim Jones. That's what you think of when you think commune. Yeah, obviously disaster, right? Uh, Branch Davidian, like all, all the ones. So, or or scaled up communism. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So that's why I believe that we need to we need to double down and do it more to try and solve for some of those 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 pitfalls mm-hmm. uh, that they fell into. Uh, so that's something that I've been considering um, as well as you know how do you, how do you create it so that there's not one cult of personality. There's like one ego bankrolling the whole thing, you know? So initially I was like, well, I'll just bankroll the whole thing and then everybody can come and, you know, do a barn raising, you know? Right. And dress like Amish or something, you yeah. know? That's, that's bullshit, right? And so, you're the landed gentry. <laughs> yeah. And you have but, surfs. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, okay, that's not gonna work because now it's still my operation. I'm the one who bankrolled it. And there's a subconscious, if not overt, sense of me being there's a power the top dynamic. Of, exactly yeah. a power dynamic. So one thing I've been exploring is and, and this is all open, like we haven't def- defined it at all, but what about um you know taking the profit motive, taking the money out of the equation, right? So you create a land trust, you basically put the land into a trust and the the land becomes at the top of the hierarchy. So we all work for the land. In service of the land. Exactly. Yeah. We all work to steward the, the natural environment to to be you know the the, the most bountiful and, and beautiful it can be, and so any, anyone who lives there agrees to to put their focus and life force into that, mm. and also uh, you know I've been exploring uh, you know like alternative currencies mm-hmm. like Bitcoin and and um, that's right. You called me when you were in Miami at the big Bitcoin oh, that's right, conference. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, using those kinds of technologies to create a hyper-local currency, which is fully transparent. So when people are living there, I, I, you know, I'm not trying to exploit you because I was a first mover on this piece of land and now I get to live pretty well. You're working your ass off to pay me, mm-hmm. you know, premium. Uh, again, back to the can't be rich unless your neighbors are rich. Like, no, like I don't want to make money off you. I, I I want I want to work with you to serve the land. So if we if you have full transparency, then everybody knows what everything costs, mm-hmm. what you paid for what, and no, there's no subterfuge or um, exploitation of the through the ignorance. Right, right, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that transparency I feel like could solve a lot of those problems. Yeah. Where everybody's on 
a level playing field and they can see exactly what's going on. Right, and, and, and on a small scale, I feel mm-hmm. like you can really do that well. You know, the minute it gets big and you have, you know, tentacles of a, a machine or a system that you can't, you don't have eyes on, it becomes more difficult to. Right. Yeah, you, gotta start some, you gotta start somewhere. Well, I, I think, think the blockchain just... and, and, and you know, cryptocurrency and social contracts and all of that provide this unprecedented opportunity to play out experiments in a way that we've never been able to do before. A hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. We're, I think we're in a great renaissance of opportunity for people to experiment and try things. And I, I think it's a, it's a positive thing if we do innovate, uh, not just in business, but also in ways of communing with other people, you know, because as our, our, our traditional institutions start to, you know, break down or maybe they're not as effective as they could be, or they're not protecting the environment or they're not protecting poor people, marginalized communities, we need to step up, take personal responsibility sure, and, and do it. Self-sufficiency becomes a premium. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, and there's no better way, way to health than to take responsibility for where your food comes from and what you're putting into your body. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. I saw a cartoon or like a meme the other day and it was a, uh, a caricature of a guy talking to an animal and he was like, you know, I'm so much smarter than you. You're, you're just, you just have this small brain. And the animal <laughs> looked at him and said, you're the only animal that pays to live here. <laughs> I was like, That's so funny. I'd never really thought about that. Yeah. You know, like think about that. So when you make the land, you know, the land is is the boss here. You're completely shifting perspective. Like it's a whole different lens on the whole thing. And what if we all I mean that's obviously that's rooted in ancient traditions. So you mean, aren't you like you're like eight percent Native American, right? Oh, uh, Twelve, Something I think, like that. Twelve percent, just just yeah. under tax. Of what tax write off? <laughs> <laughs> just underneath that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, and you know, borrowing from all those you know, tra- traditional, uh-huh. uh, you know, tra- traditions. It, it, so, because it's not defined as of yet, you know, we get to explore building our own unique little system, borrowing from those the wisdoms traditions. of our tradi- yeah. old traditions and and also new philosophies, new ideas, new new technologies. That's that's really exciting to me and we can just see if it works, mm-hmm. you know. If it, if it doesn't devolve into some sort of weird cult, you know. Right. We'll be <laughs> <laughs> Keep me honest, okay? Right. Keep I me will. honest, yeah. I think you're tiptoeing into cult leader right. status. I mean, look, right I'm wearing now. the white pants. Yeah, I know. Yeah. You're halfway there. You got a, like a nice thing around your neck, you know. Yeah, yeah. You, you could dial you up into that. Right. A found antler. Right. Yeah, so get you and Russell Brand and Jared Leto together and <laughs> no, something could come out of that. <laughs> oh, that that was that was low, man. Oh, uh, no, but all three of the all all three of you beautiful men, uh. you know, expressing themselves in interesting ways right now. That's funny. But all all leaders of you know alternative ways of thinking and being, I think, in your own rights. Mm. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> That's all I want to say. So you're in. Yeah, I'm in. Okay. I want to come. I want to come and spend some time on the farm. Yeah, come on out. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm actually going to be in Austin. I think in the fall or the winter. So I'll let you know. But I think it's cool. It's exciting, um, and I think it's cool that you're seeking out. Like when you're with with Ducantra when you're looking at a prospective investment, 
and you're trying to establish like the level of impact or innovation that a certain company, you know, has the potential to be like, what does that look like? Like, how do you make that decision mm-hmm. of getting getting involved? Yeah, so we have four verticals that we use to make decisions about who we invest in. Um, and they're, they're all reflective of the conversation we've been having. What we believe is like a, a winning uh, combination of things that we need to invest in and support in order to make a better society. And that's about you know, better humans. So better humans make better decisions, they make better businesses, they make a better world. So we have a vertical called human flourishing. So tools, technologies, medicines that help level up the human being. Mm-hmm. So health, wellness, mental health. Um, plant medicines. Plant medicines, it, right? exactly. Th- you know, th- tools, both new and ancient that will help level people up. Uh, that's one vertical. So community, mm-hmm. communitas, like companies that are, are, are seeking to solve for some of the, the disconnect that we have in our society, the, fra- the fractured communities. So how do we bring people together in really important and meaningful ways so that they can do the work to build uh, a better future? What we, what we consume and how. So consumer goods, we call it do consumer. So better for the planet, better for you, mm-hmm. stuff that we buy, how we consume it. Uh, supply chain, uh, materials, health and wellness. What's what's the ingredients and stuff? So those are that's the that's a consumer vertical. And then finally, looking at money itself. So the future of finance, uh, rethinking money and how we use it, and investing in tools and devices and systems that bring more equity and more mm-hmm. access to the world's wealth. And you know, of course blockchain technologies, Bitcoin and that sort of thing is like right up there in terms of the types of technologies that we think will actually be disruptive in a positive way. Yeah. How do you reconcile the environmental footprint of, of crypto right now with you know, your environmental work and sensibility? Obviously there's work to be done here to kind of figure that part of the equation out. Um, yeah, you know, maybe it's something that people haven't really truly fully recognized about me, but I've been a moderate environmentalist for a long time, for potentially for my mm-hmm. entire career as an environmentalist. Um, I don't look for one size fits all absolute panaceas to solve the entire world, uh, all, the, all the environmental problems. There are trade-offs to everything that we do and so I think we together need to start to create systems that uh, first of all, are, recognize what those trade-offs are, are honest about them, and then start to create systems that are better for people, better for the planet. Mm-hmm. But there's, I, I don't imagine that there's a, a, a moment in time in which our footprint becomes zero. Sure. It's our footprint is always gonna at least be greater than zero because we are here, because we do create waste, but how can we create closed loop systems and how can we create ways to help be regenerative about um, how we live and breathe and how we you know, tread lightly on the planet. So with regards to Bitcoin, it's a new technology and yes, it does have environmental challenges because of its energy consumption, mm-hmm. 
but I think the net benefit of the technology to society overall uh, is going to be a positive because while there may be some environmental challenges currently, that's going to ultimately get better and better right. because the incentive is for miners and Bitcoin and, and Bitcoin the, as an industry to find cheaper and less energy intensive ways of mining. And then at a certain point, it'll cap out because you can't mine anymore. So then it'll drop to essentially zero, but ultimately the technology will help to spawn innovations and support uh, entrepreneurs and different new technologies that will actually better the world ultimately mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. across all sectors, including energy. Mm-hmm. So I think taking currencies away from a centralized place and bringing it to as many people as possible will actually create a lot more benefit for society at large and the environment. Yeah, it's pretty fascinating. I admit to knowing close to nothing about it, but I feel like what I, from what I do know, blockchain technology just holds unbelievable potential to change our world in, in, in ways we can't even fathom right now. You know, the most obvious being like the transparency that comes with it, um, the efficiencies that can be established with it that will inherently reduce consumption and waste and things like mm-hmm. that. But I feel like we've barely even begun to comprehend what that technology is gonna is gonna bring to all of us. Yeah, I mean, well, we were just talking about it in, on like a small scale at Kintsugi uh, on, on the ranch. You know, if there's transparency, you can't exploit your neighbors, right? Mm-hmm, right. You you know you can't mark it up higher. But when when there's so much um, murky uh, transparency that you know suddenly. And, and create everything. whatever story you want to create that serves your agenda. Right, and you yeah. overpay for things and you underdeliver, and and then all all money, all finances are flowing through a centralized uh, system that are taking pieces without adding value. So it's just highly inefficient and, mm. and allows for a lot of exploitation. And when you have one-to-one direct exchange of value, where it's f- fully transparent, it's it's gonna be so much, I think, more productive in the long run for industry, for business, for just the way we interact and share value. Yeah. What's going on with the environmental work that you're doing? I saw, I mean, you were at a beach cleanup yesterday and I, I saw the video that you made about detergent pods. Oh yeah. I didn't know. Oh, I know. I just I, assumed that that dissolves and that was figured out. Yeah. So explain that a little bit. So trade-offs, right? You know, like, yeah. Uh, you know, I've I've been playing in the world of trade-offs ever since I've been doing environmental work because you recognize that, you know, even environmentalists are flying around the world to try and save the world and burning fossil fuels. You know, mm. so we got to give ourselves a break and allow ourselves to think a little bit more open-minded about you know what solution really means. Is is it about you know? we are now saved and solved, or is it about deepening our relationship to the way in which we consume, the way in which we show up and and just be more in touch with what those externalities look like and then take own, own that, own that you've done something that has a detriment and maybe correct for it. But these pods, I believed like you, I was like, oh, solution, because right. they dissolve and you can't see them to you know, to the naked eye, to the naked eye, the environment is safe. 
but on a microscopic level, it's just plastic that's become melted and then dissolved into water. So it's like a plastic goop in your laundry that then goes into directly into the waste stream and into the oceans ultimately, or through you know, your, your water treatment plant, which doesn't have the technology to actually address that particular substance. That. Right. And, and it the, doesn't break down. Right. And, the, and the biggest- It should be illegal. That's crazy. Right, and now we're getting into like centralized government, like should centralized government come in and tell you all the stuff that you need to do, you know? Uh Or can we together open our eyes and start recognizing that, you know, a lot of these companies are, you know, they're greenwashing or at least they're, you know, they're seducing us into a false sense of security when there are better solutions. And that's one thing at DuContra, what we're doing, you know, we're looking, we're really doing a deep dive. You know, we're not just investing in, oh, it says it's green and it seems green and we're gonna invest in it. So we feel good about mm-hmm. it. And we project an air of impact. No, we're actually looking at the, the, the realities of what those trade-offs are and recognizing, hey, we're gonna invest in this, even though it's not a perfect solution, but we see it as a step towards a better solution or, it's a better trade-off than the one we, we, we have. Mm-hmm. Um, so we take our deep dives very seriously before we invest. And when we found Blue Land, I mean, a, a great solution to uh, these, these pod problems. And I didn't know myself that they were, these plastic pods were actually plastic. And so Blue Land came along and was like much better solution. Yes. So they're a detergent company that's figured that out? Yeah, so they, they do cleaning products, home uh-huh. cleaning products. So they Got do it. soaps and detergents and uh, all natural ingredients and no plastic, zero plastic. They just sell, they're basically, I heard something that was like kind of like a, an Altoid for your laundry. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like right. a little compressed tablet that you throw into your laundry or then you throw one of those compressed tablets into a reusable jar for hand soap or all purpose cleaners and stuff like that. Yeah, sure. The greenwashing thing is out of control, you know, and layer on top of that, the fact that we live in a post-fact world and, mm-hmm. and a culture that, mm-hmm. that isn't just so resistant to embracing nuance. Like you're talking about the trade-offs, like everything has trade-offs and that's true in the environmental movement. That's true in politics, that's true in everything, but we're now in this culture where everything is binary, bad, good, right, wrong, et cetera. Um, anybody who's tried to you know, engineer a product and do it in a sustainable conscious way understands how complicated it quickly gets. Like, well, we could use this ingredient, which is better than yep. this one, but it comes from Vietnam. Mm-hmm. And so we're gonna have to ship it from there. And this box is not plastic, it's cardboard, but it's gonna cost more or it uses this dye, which isn't great. You know, it just quickly becomes, you know, a thing right. where you're chasing your tail. Right. And if you wanna do it so that it's of the most pristine, it's gonna be priced <laughs> out of the market right, and right. no one will buy it and exactly. you'll go out of business. And that's the reality. Right. Right. It's like everybody wants the the purest, most environmentally friendly product, but no one will pay for it. Right. Just like everybody. And then you're an elitist asshole who's part <laughs> of the problem because it's only available only to, you the, can to the it. elite. Right. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, or it's, you know, it's like our media diet too. Everybody wants news that's like has solid information with, you know, news people that are. As long as it lines up with your bias. 
Well, no, but I'm just saying that they don't want to pay for it. Right? Oh, right. So yeah, we yeah. so we let commercials pay for it, and then commercials drive the content. Right. Exactly. You know, because well, if you want to actually, I feel like pay, that's changing a little bit. Like you're seeing with Substack and everything that's going on, like people are finding ways to do subscription services. Yeah. But it's it's serving to also like bifurcate the market so much. Like, you know, how many Substacks are you gonna subscribe to? Well, I think we're, our, our society is just breaking down into smaller, more manageable sure. pieces. You know, yeah. I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. No, I mean, the, there is no monoculture anymore. Yeah, yeah. And is that good or bad? I don't know. Yeah. Right, like this whole the globalization concept that we're all going to be one big, you know, same governing body. No, just we're all planets right. unto ourselves. Yeah, that's where it's yeah. headed. Yeah, you um, know, the idea of of a television show that would that would reach as many people as Entourage is almost impossible. Oh yeah, these days. Yeah, exactly. You know, maybe that's good. I I, I can't. I think it's good. Yeah. I mean. How can you argue with evolution? I mean, it's doing its thing and we're part of it and get on board. Yeah, is it evolution or is it devolution? Well, you know, it's Sometimes both. Sometimes I'm not sure. It's both, it's expanding, contracting, yeah. expanding, contracting, breaking apart, rebuilding. Are you optimistic? I am, I'm very optimistic. So explain that to me. Well, because I've, let go of the ego part of me that thinks I know the way the world should be and surrendered to the the playfulness and the joy of just being a part of this existence. We're alive. That's how can you not be optimistic? We're here. Hmm. It's incredible. I'm just gonna let that sit for a minute. <laughs> I appreciate that. I find myself vacillating between being inspired and and being despondent with what I see. And a lot of that is fueled by me opening up my phone and scrolling through a bunch of stuff and seeing, you know, some street in Germany that where cars are getting, you know, pushed down the road in a in a massive flood and I just think like we're never going to figure this out. Oh, wait, did you think you're going to live forever? No. Oh. <laughs> but meaning as a parent also, it changes oh, sure. when you're a parent because you think about the world yeah. that your kids are inheriting. Well, I do think we live forever. Maybe that's the difference. Uh-huh. I believe that life is infinite and ever transmuting and tra- changing and transforming. It's not ever the way you think it's gonna be. Even if, even if you have the best projections and the best predictions about what tomorrow's gonna look like, it's always gonna be a little bit different, right? So. I think let go with a healthy amount of ease, your expectations. And so I live my everyday, not for how I imagine this world in my lifetime is going to be, but more for how I believe like future generations should be living. Mm. And I believe that those- That's back to Krishnamurti. Yes. The idea of being the physical, mental, emotional, spiritual embodiment of the person who's carrying a certain resonance that you would like the world to embody. Yes. It's really the only path forward. I mean, that has roots in Zen also. Yes. The way to change the world is to change yourself. Yes. Does that, does that work for you? 
Yeah, that works for me. Okay, I, cool. No, I'm completely on that page. <laughs> I'm completely on that page. When I don't, when you're talking about we 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 live forever, is that um, life about life continues? Life continues certainly, but does your yeah. conscious your consciousness is transmuted into something else? Yeah, I mean, it, you, or the oneness of consciousness, the the you know the your portion of that oneness, then will find its way into some other expression. We we crave the continuity of self. Like I'm the same person I was yesterday that I am today. And now you trust me because you, you can rely on me being me. But right. that's a very limited, that predisposes that anything is static ever. Exactly, which it's not. Mm-hmm. And if you expand out to a larger timeline, you realize, oh, you've been changing every single mm-hmm. moment and you're not the same person you were last year, certainly not the same person you were at eight, but I can also talk. I can, I can communicate through time and space by connecting in with my inner child who I know so well. And he actually speaks to me and gives me lots of wisdom and shares with me the things that I, you know, help me be a better man, a better father for, you know, not my inner child, but for my future children. Mm-hmm. So I believe there is continuity in, in, in being able to actually connect into multiple timelines, mm-hmm. not, not just your past within yourself, but also if you close your eyes, like how you imagine you want to be and where you orient your life so that you can embody and be in the embodied expression of that future potential and then let go of it. Cause you know, you know, you're you're part of a, a much more complex right. system. Well, we could do, go down a crazy, I thought we crazy <laughs> rabbit hole with this um, because ultimately, you know, time is a mental construct, oh, right? Yeah. So the idea of of moving through time or speaking to your um, your inner child or you know communicating with your future self on some level, these things are all existing simultaneously, mm-hmm. are they not? Right? And so yeah. when that inner child is 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 percolating up what is it saying to you what is he saying to you yeah is he expressing his needs or telling you it's going to be okay or what does that exchange look like yeah i think right now he's saying you know don't be a douchebag you know like make the sacrifices to be there for your kids so mm-hmm. that they you know they have a little bit easier time than you did right so it's it's yeah, it's a lesson really be the, of be, presence. Be the, be the present dad that you didn't have. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And so kids are, are gonna be a thing for you. Right. And, and, and yeah, a hundred percent. Yeah, be, be the, the, the role model that I wish I'd have, mm-hmm. you know. When you look back on this arc, do you have regrets or wish that you had done things differently? Or, you know, I'm sure people say, what's the advice you would give yourself, <laughs> you know? I get that question a lot. I never know how to answer no, it because yeah. everything is unfolded perfectly. Yeah, exactly. All the pain yeah. that I've experienced and you know the difficult times that I've had to, you know, weather have all crafted the person that I get to be today and I would never want to shortcut myself from that. Well, it's also the devil that you know, right? Mm-hmm. I'd m- much rather take the existence that I've already experienced and I've already gone through and I'm like, okay, I'll take this cuz could could be worse. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And are you completely done with acting, or what's your relationship with the craft? I I just changed my relationship to what kind of roles I take, and 
uh, you know, I'm not acting for money. Uh, in other words, I'm not just taking mm-hmm. jobs because they're gonna pay me a good good amount of money. It's more uh, if the role resonates right, with me. Right, some and, crazy awesome role falls into your lap with an unbelievable director. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. David so Venture, still, okay, still, I'll do there's it. still yeah. a tether, like a, a maybe a thread to Hollywood. Yeah, I, absolutely. I mean, I, 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 and I'm also, as I mentioned, I'm getting back into the storytelling, like how I'm going to show up mm-hmm. in that in that capacity. Um, and it's not all Hollywood and movies, but also I have a lot of a lot to say in documentary form mm-hmm. and short form, and so podcast or docu-series. I, I plan on doing a lot of that stuff right, as well. Right, do you have anything, any projects you're thinking about that you're willing to share about? Yeah, so I've been, this is a little bit premature, but I'll share it. Um, I've been slowly building a, a channel, which I call Earth Speed, life, a lifestyle in the cadence of nature. And that's, essentially going to be my channel for sharing stories from the land, my trials, my, my challenges and my successes in building the community mm-hmm. and learning how to farm, learning how to grow my own food, all of those things um, that I think should be open sourced and shared. Again, as, as I you know, use my life as a laboratory or as an experiment for, for possibility, mm-hmm. I wanna be able to share that open source it so that not only I can get feedback, like, hey, don't do that, you dummy. It's so much easier if you do it this other way, yeah. but also you know, maybe other people might be inspired to, to try it themselves. And I think the more people start to experiment, explore uh, growing food in their backyards, in their front yards, mm-hmm. do away with the, the, the front lawn, make some, Make right. some food. Uh, I think we're going to have to share share wisdom in that. And yeah. So you've been documenting that all along. Yeah. Here and right. there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's cool. Are you connected to Zach Bush, Doctor Zach Bush, oh, Farmer's uh, Footprint? Not directly, but I, I I listen to him often. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, he's he's a good friend. I mean, that's the first thing I thought of. Oh, I'd like, love you to. should you should sync up with him, please. Yeah. Because all the work that he's doing in that very space with regenerative farming and permaculture. Where is and, he? Try, where is he? Yeah, He's been living in Hawaii mostly, but he's got a place in Encinitas as well. And Farmer's Footprint is located in Encinitas. Yeah. Um, but they're you know, close with them. I can make that connection easily. I, I would love that. You yeah. know, I, I really think the future, at least in my, the way I see it, w- will be absolutely decentralized, but you'll have little pockets of sanity, you know, little yeah. islands of cohesion, all interfacing, connected, but, you know, autonomous. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's what we're looking to contribute to is that vision is our land will be its own standalone system, but we'll have a lot of back and forth and exchange of ideas with other communities and other farms and other uh, operations around the mm-hmm. world. Yeah, I, I think it's, it's, it's just like anything else. You have to start in one place, prove that it's possible before you can, you know, tackle the larger problem and then, Share the process of how that was built to then, you know, create scalable solutions. Because we're looking at a food system right now that's so broken, that's so deleterious mm-hmm. environmentally, yeah. um, that creates all kinds of food injustice and a battery of problems that are but, making us sick and depleting the planet. And truly, the only way forward is to find new regenerative 
scalable, sustainable solutions. So as consumers, yes, we can use our front lawns and, and do all of that, but those are really just pilot projects for how to create an environmental model and an economic model for the modern day farmer that will incentivize them to make that switch and get out of their, you know, big ag, you know, paradigm to create right. food that is actually going to be able to feed the planet. Yeah, I, I I would just push back a little bit on the the expectation of scalability, and I think it's this weird thing that we all believe that scalable solutions are the mm. right solutions, or a business that can scale is the the best business that we can have. There's something that you lose when things scale. And and as I was saying, once a system grows to the point where the tentacles are so long that you can't keep track, it you know, starts to become inefficient and often the externalities and the destructiveness can can sort of uh, get away from you. Yeah. So I don't know if we need scalable solutions. I think we need 8 billion localized solutions within each individual that doesn't scale, but is mm-hmm. like very unique and specific to where that person is or where that community is. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, I think every, it's, it's not just a consumer solution to, to grow food in your front yard. It's actually a, a environment wide solution with if everybody takes responsibility for their own little patch of land mm-hmm. and we stop farming out, no pun intended, our farm industry or agriculture industry to these big scaled businesses that can't really take care of the environment because once you have a certain number of animals on a feedlot, the, the system collapses because you need diversity within each of those systems. So it has to be small and it has to be localized uh, and individualized, I believe. Yeah, no, that's a, a point well taken. I guess uh, part of where that comes from for me is you know, somebody who's been, you know, I've been plant-based for 15 years, but I'm under no illusion that the entire world is gonna get struck plant-based. Like there's, you know, it's always gonna be, you know, a smaller percentage of the population. And likewise, not everybody is gonna start planting food in their front yard. You know, there's just a, a large percentage of the population that either live in urban places or it's not accessible for them or they're working three jobs. Mm-hmm. But perhaps to your point, there can at least be these community hubs in every community, yep. right? And, 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 and you localize the whole thing. Right. And it's sort of community owned and operated in a way that creates a brand new paradigm that does reconnect the members of that community who don't have the wherewithal to like plant in their front yard or whatever right. to participate in that. Or instead of the, you know, local forever 21, you have vertical farming in right. that, you know, yeah, yeah, in that yeah. building. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's crazy. I was in New York City the other week and and uh, I did, uh, and I love New York. Like I have so much fun <laughs> going back there. I mean, I didn't grow up there, but I get such a boost of like energy when I'm there. And I, I did a podcast with Eric Adams, who's most likely gonna be the next mayor. And he's got a huge food food initiative. He had a crazy health story that's made him very interested and invested in shifting the city's relationship with nutrition and schools and hospitals, et cetera. And I was like, I said to him, like every rooftop in this in this city should have a garden, like, and he's like, I'm all about it. Like, I, you know, mm. to the extent that a politician within that framework can motivate that kind of change, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not sanguine about. But just to have 
the conversation about the possibility of that. You know, every urban environment should make use of vacant lots and rooftops and vertical gardening. Like there is a crazy viable future if mm-hmm. we can marshal the political will and the resources to make those things happen. And I think most people want that. Mm-hmm. Do they? I don't know. See, I, I thought know. you were the optimist. Well, no, I am the optimist. I just think that people still believe in the you know old paradigm. Mm-hmm. They're still attached to this. But you have to show them. You have to show them the way. This is where the cult leader thing comes <laughs> You still need the personality, right? Uh, you got the white okay, pants. Okay, fine, I'll do You're it. halfway there. <laughs> fine, you talked me into it. Take us across the goal line, Adrian. <laughs> um, cool, man. Well, I think that's a good place to land this plane for today. Awesome. How do you feel? I feel great, yeah. yeah. I'm glad that we got to do this. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. Um, me too, man. I, I think it's really inspiring what you're doing and, and you know, impressive that you've you know, made this life pivot and, 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 and decided to put these values that you have um, to work and in the forefront of the advocacy. And I know you're in a gestation period, but like all artists, you have to live your life before you can create expression out of those experiences. And I have no doubt that at the appropriate time you will bring expression to that. And I think that that will be impactful to many. So I Mm. wish you luck, I wish you well, and I'm at your service. Oh, thanks my friend, I appreciate it. Cool. So if people wanna learn more about what you're up to, do Contra, Lonely Whale, all the stuff, where's the best place to direct them? So ducontra.ventures and we're actively seeking investment. So if you wanna invest in what we're doing and take a look at the model, uh, reach out to us, email us. So the website is ducontra.ventures. And then of course, Lonely Whales, my ocean conservation organization, lonelywhale.org. We have a number of really great uh, projects and campaigns, including Ocean Heroes Bootcamp, my favorite, where we host 300 youngsters from mm. 30 different countries around the world to do ocean work. That's cool. Um, yeah, I'll just leave it at those two for now. All right, and at Adrian. Oh, at Adrian Grenier. All the places. Yes, yes, yeah. on Insta. Cool, man. Yeah. Well, uh, hopefully you'll come back and talk to me again, man. I really enjoyed this. Let's do it. Next time we'll record at the ranch. Yeah, yeah. that would be good. I'm okay. into that, yeah. cool, all right. It's a date Uh, and I'll expect you to be wearing full white. (laughs) Okay. All right. I will. Cool. Feathers. Peace. (laughs) Bye. Plants. (laughs) Take care. That's it for today. Thank you for listening. I truly hope you enjoyed the conversation. To learn more about today's guest, including links and resources related to everything discussed today, visit the episode page at richroll.com where you can find the entire podcast archive, as well as podcast merch, my books, Finding Ultra, Voicing Change in the Plant Power Way, as well as the Plant Power Meal Planner at meals.richroll.com. If you'd like to support the podcast, the easiest and most impactful thing you can do is to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, and on YouTube and leave a review and or comment. Supporting the sponsors who support the show is also important and appreciated. And sharing the show or your favorite episode with friends or on social media is of course 
awesome and very helpful. And finally, for podcast updates, special offers on books, the meal planner and other subjects, please subscribe to our newsletter, which you can find on the footer of any page at richroll.com. Today's show was produced and engineered by Jason Camiolo with additional audio engineering by Kale Curtis. The video edition of the podcast was created by Blake Curtis with assistance by our creative director, Dan Drake. Portraits by Davey Greenberg and Grayson Wilder. Graphic and social media assets, courtesy of Jessica Miranda, Daniel Solis, Dan Drake, and AJ Akpodiete. Thank you, Georgia Whaley, for copywriting and website management. And of course, our theme music was created by Tyler Pyatt, Trapper Pyatt, and Harry Mathis. Appreciate the love, love the support. See you back here soon. Peace. Plants. Namaste. Namaste.